weeks, we've been exploring some of the events and activities that led up to Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. And so far, we've explored uh, the events, the activities, those things that happened when Jesus was sharing his last supper, his final meal with his closest followers, his disciples. So two weeks ago, we talked about one of the things that happened before the meal was even served, when Jesus bowed down, humbled himself, and washed the disciples' dirty, sweaty, stinky feet before the meal even began. We were reminded that when Jesus did this, he was showing the disciples and showing all of us that there are some things that we cannot wash away on our own. There are things in all of our lives that separate us from God. We call these things sin in the church. And these sins cannot be washed away by us. The only one who can wash away our sins is Jesus. Then last week, we took our time and we explored the elements that were sitting on the table. When Jesus and his disciples gathered together for that last meal, we talked about what they ate that day. And we saw that they weren't just eating an ordinary meal, but instead everything that they were eating that day had symbolic meaning and value. It was a reminder for them. Each of these elements reminded them of a different way that God had reached out into the lives of their ancestors. And each of these elements was a promise that God would continue to reach out into their lives. So when they gathered and they ate that meal, they saw, they saw that God always keeps his promises. Well, today we're going to start moving away from the Last Supper. We're going to continue on thinking about what happened after Jesus and his disciples shared that final meal. And we know from the, the Gospel of Mark, Mark's biography of Jesus, that after they had finished eating this meal, that the group then went out into the garden to pray. After the disciples had finished their meal with Jesus, Jesus and his disciples, they go out to an olive garden. And I'm not talking about the place that serves soup, salad, and breadsticks. They went to an olive garden called Gethsemane. And they went there that day so that they could pray. But more than prayer happened that night when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is actually the turning point in the entire story. What happens inside of this garden is where the entire story changes. What happens in the garden is Jesus enters into it as a free man, but he is going to leave it being led by a mob of people that are carrying swords and clubs. The Garden of Gethsemane is the dramatic turn in the entire story. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself right now. For us to really appreciate what happens inside of the garden, we have to understand something that happened earlier on in that day. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. In the day leading up to this Last Supper, the disciples and Jesus would have been moving through the town of Jerusalem, taking care of business, the affairs that they needed to take care of to get ready for that meal to happen. They would have been out buying the food, all of that sort of stuff that they would need. Well, while all of this is going on, one of Jesus' disciples Judas is going to undertake something a little bit different than the rest of the disciples are. So go ahead and grab your Bibles for me this morning and start turning to the book of Matthew. It doesn't matter if you have a printed Bible or an app on your phone. Start finding the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's biography of Jesus. Now, inside of the New Testament, Matthew's the first book in the New Testament, there are basically two types of books that we find in the New Testament. They are either biographies of Jesus, books that tell us the story of Jesus, or they are books that tell us about how our faith in Jesus grew and spread throughout the first century. Well, the Gospel of Matthew is the first kind of book. It tells us 
the story of Jesus. It's a biography of Jesus. And inside of Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, we're going to find the story of what Judas does while the disciples and Jesus are out preparing to share their last supper. Matthew 26, we'll start reading in verse 14. That's what he says. Then one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and he said, What will you give me if I turn Jesus over to you? What will you give me if I turn Jesus over to you? They told him that they would pay him 30 pieces of silver. From that time on, Judas was looking for an opportunity to turn Jesus in. Now it's been said that every good story needs a hero. And let's just be honest this morning, we all love our heroes. I mean, there is a reason why Marvel's Black Panther movie has made over $800 million in the last couple of weeks. We love stories about heroes. We absolutely love our heroes. We love Batman. We love Dorothy and her little dog Toto. We love Luke Skywalker. We love our heroes. But no matter how much we love our heroes, their stories just aren't as good. They're not as compelling if they don't have villains in them. I mean, Batman is cool, but Batman is just a cool guy who really likes to play dress-up if it's not for the Joker, okay? And Dorothy, Dorothy and Toto, I love Dorothy and Toto, but they are really just out for a stroll down a shiny strip of road if it's not for the Wicked Witch that they're getting away from. And Luke Skywalker, I'm a Star Wars fan, I love Luke Skywalker, but Luke Skywalker would still be looking that binary sunset on Tatooine if it wasn't for Darth Vader, okay? We love our heroes, but our heroes, the stories just aren't as compelling if it's not for the villain. So every good story has to have a villain as well. And when it comes to villains, there's one name that stands out. One name that has become synonymous with evil and treachery and villainous behavior. And that's the name of Judas Iscariot. Judas has become so synonymous with his vile and villainous actions that the poet Dante reserves a special place for Judas in the circles of hell inside of the first canticle that Dante wrote called, of the divine comedy called the Inferno. And for Judas, Judas is one of three traitors who spends all of eternity in Satan's mouth while Satan is clawing at his back with his nails in Dante's Inferno. And the reason for that, why does that happen? Because in Dante's mind, Judas is the worst traitor who has ever lived. The worst villain in all of history. And Judas is the worst villain in all of history because he's the one who betrayed Jesus. Now as we continue reading, going back to Matthew 26, we find how Judas goes about betraying Jesus. Matthew 26, we'll skip down to verse 47. That's what Matthew tells us. While Jesus was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came. With him was a large crowd, a large mob carrying swords and clubs. They had been sent by the chief priests and the elders of the people. His betrayer had given them a sign. Arrest the man I kiss. Just then, Judas came to Jesus and he said, Hello, Rabbi. Then he kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then the crowd came, they grabbed Jesus, and they arrested him. And that story, 
Judas finds Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He approaches him as a friend, gives him a kiss of greeting, and betrays him into the hands of an angry mob. Why does he do it? Well, if you remember back to the passage we read just a few minutes ago, he does it for 30 pieces of silver. Now, in his book, The Murder of Jesus, John MacArthur writes that these coins, these 30 silver pieces, these 30 silver shekels that Judas receives is worth about 120 denarii. Now, that is roughly four months' worth of wages, okay? So you're talking about these 30 silver coins are the modern-day equivalent of about $17,000. $17,000. In your wildest imagination, could you imagine betraying Jesus for $17,000? Let that sink in for a minute. 17 grand. That's what it took for Judas to betray Jesus. Well, I should say that might be what it took for Judas to betray Jesus because I actually think there's a really good chance that John MacArthur grossly overestimates the value of these 30 silver coins because this isn't the first time that we run across this this image of 30 silver coins, 30 silver shekels inside of the Bible. This is an image that pops up at least a couple of times before. And inside of these other stories, these other times that we see these 30 silver shekels, it's pretty clear that they're not worth a whole lot of money. One of the, one of the earlier times that we run across this is inside of the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is, is a prophet. And inside of this story, inside of Zechariah's story, he, uh, he takes on a job where he is working inside of fields, watching over sheep that have been designated for slaughter. But Zechariah gets into a dispute with his new bosses along the way. So Zechariah has been working as a shepherd, watching over, over sheep who have been designated for slaughter, but he gets angry, gets upset with his bosses, and Zechariah decides that he is going to quit his job. But before he walks away from his job, he stops and he tells his bosses this. He tells them, if it seems right to you, give me my wages. But if not, just keep them. So his bosses, they weighed out as his wages, 30 shekels of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it into the treasury, this lordly price at which I was valued by them. So I took their 30 shekels of silver. I threw them into the treasury in the house of the Lord. Now, if you listen carefully to this passage of Scripture, you can almost hear the sarcasm starting to drip from Zechariah's mouth. If it seems right to you, my bosses, then give me my wages. But if not, you can just keep what you owe me. So they weighed out for me my wages, 30 shekels of silver is what they gave me. Then the Lord said to me, throw it into the treasury, this lordly price at which I was valued by them. This lordly price at which I was valued by them. You can hear it. You can hear it in Zechariah's written words. That this is a paltry sum, and Zechariah knows that these 30 silver shekels are worth virtually nothing because Zechariah remembers the earliest time that we run into 30 silver shekels inside of Scripture. He remembers the first time that we see this imagery, these 30 silver shekels, is inside of Exodus. Exodus 21, verse 32, when it says this, If the ox gores a male or a female slave, the owner shall pay the slave owner 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. 
So these 30 silver coins, these 30 silver shekels that Judas receives from betraying Jesus are the same as the 30 silver shekels that Zechariah receives for his work in the flocks uh, of his bosses. And these 30 silver shekels are the same as an injured slave is worth. That's it. These 30 silver coins are worth the same amount as an injured slave in Israel society. And that got me thinking. Okay, an injured slave is not worth $17,000. Not in this culture. So how much are these really worth? So that got me in digging into this a little bit more. And what I found is that these shekels, is that a single shekel weighs 24 garas, which means a whole lot to everybody in here because we still weigh everything in garas, right? One gara weighs 0.416 grams, which is getting a little bit better. We're at least familiar with grams. So this is what it boils down to. Each shekel on its own weighs about 10 grams. And the going rate for a gram of silver today is 54 cents. 54 cents per gram of silver, which means that each one of these coins is worth about five and a half dollars. So when you put all of these together, Judas betrays Jesus for about 160 bucks. Some of you are walking around with more than that on you right now. $160 is all it took for Judas to agree to betray Jesus. Now, if there was no way you could ever imagine a situation where you would betray Jesus for $17,000, is there any possible, conceivable way that you would agree to betray Jesus for $160? But what if there's more to the story? What if there's something happening here that we don't see? What if there's something else that is motivating Ju Judas aside from this money? Because the Bible never really tells us Judas' motivations. It simply tells us what Judas does, but it never tells us directly or definitively why Judas does what he does. So there are a few theories out there about what causes Judas to make this decision to betray Jesus. And the first theory does revolve around money. The first theory tells us that Judas does this to get those 30 silver shekels. And the reason why this is one of the going theories is obviously, first of all, he makes the agreement with the religious leaders to take these 30 silver coins. But if you pay attention to the way the rest of the story begins, right before Judas makes this agreement to go out with the religious leaders and betray Jesus, before he makes this deal, Judas is sitting down to another meal with Jesus and his disciples. Not the Last Supper, but an earlier meal. And while they're sitting together and they're having this meal, a woman comes in who is carrying an expensive jar of perfume. How expensive is this jar of perfume? It's worth about $50,000 today. Now that's some expensive perfume. And what does the woman do with all of this perfume? She anoints Jesus with it. She takes the entire bottle pours it over Jesus' head. And Judas, Judas chimes in because he just can't believe what this woman does. Judas chimes in and he says, wouldn't it have been better if we took this jar of perfume and we sold it? We could have made $50,000 off of that and imagine how many poor people we could have helped with $50,000. But don't start thinking that Judas is the good guy because we get a little footnote in the Bible right afterwards that says, Judas didn't say this because he cares about poor people. It's because Judas was the treasurer for the group and he had a tendency to um, line his pockets with what he found inside of the disciples' purse, okay? So Judas is a little greedy. 
He has a history and a habit of stealing from the disciples. So he may have made this agreement to betray Jesus because he's still ticked off that Jesus let $50,000 slip through his fingers. So he'd settle for 160. But that's just one theory about why Judas made this agreement. The other theory still stems from the same story about Jesus being anointed by this woman with this expensive perfume. Because after all of this happens, Jesus speaks directly to his disciples and he scolds them for their attitude toward this extravagant gesture. Jesus says this to him, to them. He says, why are you criticizing this woman for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. She has poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. And I tell you the truth, wherever the good news of God is, is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. Why are you criticizing her? Why are you criticizing her for what she's done? So why does Judas betray Jesus? Well, maybe it's because Judas is a little bit mad that he got called out on the carpet by Jesus. We've all reacted in anger before, spoke out, behaved too quickly before we had a chance to gain our composure. So it's possible that Judas was mad at Jesus for scolding him like a dog. And he goes out and makes an agreement to betray Jesus. There's one last theory of why Judas makes this decision. And this one doesn't really have any founding in Scripture at all. But it revolves around the idea of who Judas, the rest of the disciples, and all of Israel believed their Messiah would be. Judas expected his Messiah would be a military leader. Judas expected his Messiah would be someone who would come to overthrow the Roman Empire. Judas expected that his Messiah would come and clear out all of the religious leaders that were corrupting Israel because they had simply been empowered by Rome to do it. So the theory goes that Judas betrayed Jesus simply to force Jesus' hand. He was hoping that by turning Jesus over to be arrested and executed, that Jesus would finally step up and behave like the Messiah that Judas expected him to be. He hoped that Jesus would call down the heaven's armies to save his own life. He hoped, Judas hoped that Jesus would realize his full messianic potential if he was just put on the spot. So maybe Judas was motivated by money. Maybe Judas was just angry with Jesus. Maybe Judas really wanted Jesus to become the Messiah he had always wanted the Messiah to be. And Judas was just trying to rush the kingdom of God along. But the truth is, it really doesn't matter to us why Judas made this decision. Because for all of us, we look at Judas and we think of what he did as something that is completely unforgivable. So it doesn't matter if he was motivated, motivated by money or anger, or selfish ambition. We don't care, because we can't forgive him for it anyway. Because the decision that Judas made, made him the greatest villain in all of history. But there's something funny about being a villain that I learned in a college acting class a long time ago. Inside of this college acting class, we, each student was assigned to perform a different dramatic monologue. So we had some students in the class who got to pull out the Forrest Gump lines of life is like a box of chocolates. 
And then we had others who got to pull their best Dirty Harry impersonation and ask kids if they felt lucky punk. Um, but me, I got assigned a particular role that Denzel Washington played, a monologue that he performed in the movie Training Day. It was a performance that earned Denzel Washington an Oscar. And inside of this movie, in case you haven't seen it, Denzel Washington, he plays a narcotics officer named Alonzo Harris. But just because he is a police officer, it doesn't mean that Alonzo Harris is a good guy. Alonzo Harris is corrupt as corrupt can be, okay? He is as crooked as you could possibly imagine anyone becoming. He lied, he cheated, he stole, he even killed other people, all in the name of his own personal greed. So here I am. I'm like 20 years old at this point. I'm a college student who is majoring in religion, and I get asked to play a narcotics officer who is absolutely as corrupt and crooked as you could possibly imagine, and I just can't do it. I mean, this character, this Alonzo Harris, is about as different from me as you could possibly imagine a character being, and I cannot put myself in his shoes. So in one of our classes, the professor's sitting down with each of us, and we're talking about the monologues that we've been assigned. And I tell the professor, I said, this guy's just too different for me. This guy's too different for me. I cannot play this role. I cannot be the bad guy. I can't play this villain. There is nothing with inside of him that I can relate to. My professor stopped me there. My professor stopped me there, and he told me something that I'll never forget. He said, Adam... Nobody ever plays the villain. Nobody ever plays the bad guy. Because you can't take a role believing that your character is bad. And you can't take a role believing that your character is bad because no human being ever thinks that they're bad. We don't go into life looking at ourselves and thinking that we are evil, villainous people. So if you want to play this character... You have to look past your thoughts of him. You have to understand what led him down this path. You have to understand that he's not a bad guy. He just fell victim to bad decisions. As I continued to work on this monologue, I started to understand what my professor meant. I couldn't play this character, this Alonzo Harris character, because I couldn't empathize with him. I really could not put myself into his shoes. And until I could reach a point where I could actually put myself into his shoes, I was never going to be able to complete this assignment. And I couldn't do that if I kept telling myself, this is the bad guy, this is the villain of the movie, I want to be the hero. But what does all this have to do with Judas? Well, it has everything to do with Judas. It has everything to do with Judas. He's someone that none of us sitting inside of this place this morning can empathize with. He's somebody that we cannot put ourselves into his shoes. We cannot relate to Judas. We cannot root for Judas. We cannot be inspired to greater things by Judas. Judas is just too evil. He is just too bad. His betrayal is just too awful. There is no way that we could betray Jesus. We just cannot put ourselves in that place. There is no way that we could betray Jesus. Not for $160, not for $17,000, not out of greed, not out of anger, not out of selfish ambition. There is no way we could betray Jesus. Except when we do. There is no way we could betray Jesus except when we do. And we do it 
all the time. We betray Jesus every time that we sin. Every time we do anything that separates us from God, we betray Jesus. We betray Jesus every time that we fall short of the standards that God has set for our lives. Every time we follow paths we're not supposed to follow. We betray Jesus every time we don't do what Jesus would do. We betray Jesus every time that we don't say what Jesus would say. We betray Jesus every time that we don't let the light of Christ shine through our lives. We betray Jesus all the time. Sometimes we betray Jesus in great big ways. Sometimes we betray Jesus in great big ways. When we physically harm another human being. When we allow our pride, our prejudice, our anger to treat someone like they are less than human instead of treating them like they are a child of God. But sometimes we betray Jesus in itty bitty small things along the way. We get mad. We get mad about the guy who cut in front of us in traffic. We get mad when we're sitting in a drive through lane, the double drive through lane at McDonald's, and they take that guy's order before they take ours. We sin all the time in big ways and in small ways. We betray Jesus all the time. So even though it may seem impossible to you when you hear the story of Judas, to begin to relate to Judas, you need to realize that you can. We all can relate to Judas because we all are like Judas. I'm like Judas. I betray Jesus. I betray Jesus in the things that I do and the things that I leave undone. I betray Jesus when I lash out in anger instead of reaching out in love. I betray Jesus when I raise a fist out of anger instead of extending a hand in love and generosity. I betray Jesus when I bring sorrow into this world instead of bringing joy. I betray Jesus when I bring despair instead of hope. And you need to realize, you're just like Judas too. You're just like Judas too. And until you can admit that, until you can admit that there is no way that you can, until you can admit, admit that you betray Jesus all the time in big ways and small ways, until you can admit that, there is no way that you can grow closer to Jesus. There is no way that you can take your next step toward Christ when you still do not realize that your actions betray Jesus all the time. Until you realize that you betray Jesus, you can't take your relationship with him to the next level. Because if you believe that you could never betray Jesus, then you'll never know how much you actually need Jesus. If you believe that you could never betray Jesus, then you're never going to know how much you need Jesus. And we all need Jesus. I need Jesus, you need Jesus, we all need Jesus. So you have to take some time in your life to really examine your actions and understand how you betray Jesus. You have to admit that the way that you act, the way that you act, the choices that you make, that they separate you from God. You have to ask Jesus to forgive you of your betrayal. So here's what I want you to do this week. At the end of each day this week, I want you to stop, to find some time at the end of the day, each day, and think back about everything that you did that day. Every decision that you made, 
whether you acted on it or didn't act on it, I want you to think back on it. And I want you to think about the things that you did, the things that you didn't do. And I want you to see where your choices betrayed Jesus that day. And if you didn't find something in your day that showed that you betrayed Jesus along the way, you go back and think again. Because we all do it all the time. And when you start to see how you are betraying Jesus, consciously, subconsciously, unconsciously, every single day, then I want you to stop and I want you to ask for forgiveness. I want you to ask for forgiveness. Because God's forgiveness is the only thing that will keep you from really becoming another Judas. God's forgiveness will give you the opportunity to continue to grow closer to Jesus and to continue to become the person that God made you to be. Let's pray together. God, when we come together in this place week after week, we sometimes like to trick ourselves. We sometimes like to make ourselves believe that we are perfect but God, we're not perfect. You know that we're not perfect. Deep down inside, we all know that we're not perfect. God, every day we make decisions that betray you. We make decisions that betray who you are and who you made us to be. And each of these decisions, God, they keep us from growing closer to you and becoming the people that you want us to be. So God, my prayer today is that everyone who can hear my voice will be challenged to look at their life a little bit closer, to think each day about the decisions that we make, to examine ourselves and understand where we are falling short of your standards. Allow us to see where we betray you. And then God, let us humble ourselves and ask you for, for, for the forgiveness that we all need. Because your forgiveness is the only thing that keeps us on the right path. Your forgiveness is the only thing that allows us to continue to pursue you. Your forgiveness is the only thing that lets us to continue to become the people that you made us to be. So God, help us to see where we betray you and help us to find your forgiveness. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in just a moment, we're going to stand together.